You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we are going to talk about the case of Peggy Reber. Um, before we dive in, um, I do have a couple disclaimers. So number one, this is a brutal case involving a child. Um, most of what I say is going to be focused on the process that followed the murder. But when we do talk about the autopsy report, um, it is very graphic. So either prepare yourself for that or join us again next week. Um, it's not a whole bunch of the episode, but it is fairly graphic when we get there. Um, and also this case easily could have been two or three episodes. If we included all of the, he said, she said, and the, um, different conspiracies that center around it. So I decided in writing this up that I didn't really want to go that deep into the he said, she said, I wanted to try to stick to the actual case facts. Um, if you want to dive deeper, there is a book. It's the top source listed on the website. Um, it's a book called Justice Denied, and it was written by a Lebanon local. And this case does come out of Lebanon. So if you're interested in diving deeper, definitely just get that book. I bought it on Amazon. It wasn't very expensive. Um, it's fascinating, but there's a lot of the he said, she said and conspiracy that kind of goes into it. So we won't dive too deep in this episode, but it's definitely worth checking out um, the book if you're interested in more details. So, um, like I said, we are talking about Peggy Reber today. She was born as Margaret Lynn Reber. She went by Peggy and her body was discovered early morning of May 26th, 1968. Um, she was 14 years old at this time. She had been in a relationship with a 19 year old named Ray Charles Boyer for about two months leading up to this. Was the family okay with that age difference? They seemed to be. Um, and part of it, I think, was because of the fact that he was part of the Boyer family. Um, so his brother, so Ray's brother, was Peggy's brother-in-law. So his brother was married to Peggy's twin sister, okay. who was also 14. Okay, but they were married. So it's just kind of this loop and circle of people, not necessarily a bad thing. It's not anything. You know, it's not incest. It's not like they're dating their cousins. It's just sisters that are dating brothers. But on May 25th, which was a Saturday, uh, the day before her body was discovered, he had actually been arrested for non-support charges from his wife. Um, that's the wording that I found. <clears throat> excuse me. That's the wording that I found in one of the newspaper articles. Um, in some of the more recent articles, and I think also in the book, it was mentioning child support payments, but I couldn't find anywhere in the newspapers from the 60s that actually said it was child support. The wording was non-support charges from his wife. So I don't know if that's like they were split and he wasn't paying alimony. I mean, I don't know if it was something like that, um, but that's how it was worded. Um, she lived with her mom um, and her mom's lifestyle was questionable, especially for the time. Her mom was single. Her mom and stepdad had gotten divorced and her mom's name was Mary. Mary and Peggy lived alone in the apartment. So it was just the two of them there because her sister was married and lived with her husband. And then obviously the stepdad, since they were divorced, he was at his own place. Um, now, her stepdad is actually the one who paid for the burial plot and the stone at the cemetery where she's buried. Um, there's some interesting details in the book about that. Um, 
something about I'm not sure if he had adopted her or just kind of took her in, but they all had the same last name. So the fact that Peggy's last name is Reber and her stepdad's last name was Reber makes me think that he adopted the girls. Uh, but I honestly, I couldn't find too much information about that process. But I guess together, her mom and stepdad had bought these burial plots just to have for the family and her stepdad when they got divorced got to keep the plots but he still ended up burying peggy there so that's about as much as i've read about her stepdad do we know anything about the real dad or just the fact that he's probably hasn't been in the picture since the name change and all of that yeah, not that I could find. And of course, you know, we're looking at a case from 1968 and she was 14. So she's born in the 50s. You know, people didn't have Facebook in MySpace back then to post um, all of their drama to to see, you know, who's who and, and plays what role. Um, but I couldn't find anything on a biological father. And they just referred to this man as her stepdad. Now, there were some issues within the house. Peggy had a lot of truancy issues. Um, it was May. So ending up the school year, she had about 30 days that she missed that year, um, which I know we've talked about truancy on here before. That's definitely a huge red flag now. I honestly don't know how truancy was handled in the 60s and 70s. I don't think it was really a thing other than like a slap on the wrist. Like, hey, you need to, to get into school, but I'm not 100% on that. I know just for me, I um, actually technically failed every single grade up until sixth grade because of truancy issues. And my mom got tons of like truancy letters, but never actually went to court. And this was in like 2000. So there was a lot of days that I missed and they, she'd always say one thing or another. So I can't even imagine how lax they were before then. Like now it's like, you miss one day and you get letters home. And I'm like, what? Yeah, we send them at our school. We send them at three days unexcused and then five days unexcused. And then if you get up to 10 days unexcused in a school year, we have a meeting before it goes to court or anything. But that's that's just kind of how it's handled now. I think that's a statewide thing. I don't think it's just my school. Is And your school, that's for specifically for special needs kids or you're just special needs with your charter? I have um, special ed students in my class. Just, you know, I have to meet the needs of IEPs in my class, but I'm not a special education teacher. You see for Landon, he misses a lot of days of school and they don't really press me. There's only one time that they did, whereas other parents, it's different. So I didn't know if it was like because he's special needs and has like I mean, you can look at him and he'll get sick. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we have certain kids like I have a, a student in my class this year that is going through some medical issues and between different appointments, you know, they've had to miss different days here and there. And I mean, this student's parent is someone that talks to us frequently and keeps us in the know. But that's a situation where if that student misses days because of something going on medically, they're kind of automatically resolved. Okay. Whereas I have other kids that just don't log in and we can't get them on the phone. And of course, being cyber, it's a, a little bit of a different world too. But, um, you know, there's definitely cases where either parents just don't put excuses in or we can't get in touch with the family. And it's much harsher now. Like if we had a kid with 30 plus days missed, like Peggy had, it, it would be in the court system and CYS would be involved for educational neglect and all of those sorts of things. So I know it's definitely different now. Um, with the days that you missed when you said you know, like you technically failed every grade. Did they make you repeat grades? No, never. I only okay. repeated one grade, but that's because my mom wanted uh, the benefits longer. But you get SSI benefits until you graduate. Ah. Uh, yeah. And so. that was the only reason. And I didn't get help okay. back, but it was like a huge disadvantage. Like I had to work really hard when my grandparents took me because I was so behind. And they actually tried to like right. the school tried to create these programs to get me to come in to be even interested to come in. And it was just a huge problem. 
And CPS would come, but never do anything. And that seems to be kind of the case here as well. Um, it CPS was apparently aware of these issues, but... It, and I think I've said this before on here, if not, I've said it in passing to friends that a lot of times we see these issues from, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it's like, oh, they didn't do anything about it then because they didn't know they had to. So like, yeah, we're a lot harsher with things now because we recognize, you know, if you're missing 30 days of school, that's an issue. You know, over the course of your education, that's a year and a half worth of school. So you're missing all of that. But it just it wasn't seen as, you know, physical abuse. So, you know, the kids weren't bruised and they were healthy and had food. And so, oh, well, but obviously it's it's changed a lot since 68. Um now, if her mom had been given fines, who's to say if she would have been able to pay them anyway? Um, they had no electric in the apartment. The landlord had turned off the electric for their unit in an attempt to evict them, I think, um, which I don't think that's a thing now, but I think it was then. Is that what you're going to say? I was going to say that that you can't do that <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again in the sixties, you know, you could, you could get away with it. So there was also limited food in the apartment and it was in a bad area of town. I mean, when you live in an area long enough, you get to know like the apartment complexes that you don't want to go towards or the streets that you don't really want to walk down. And this was kind of in that area of Lebanon. Um, it actually doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I forget the exact year, but they did tear down the apartment building at some point. And I think there's just like new its place. I can't remember, but um, it, it doesn't even exist anymore. There was a high traffic of men that came in and out of the apartment. Peggy was supposed to have a friend move in with her that weekend. Um, her name was Blanche Klein and she went by the nickname Pinky. And I guess she had brought some clothes over that day, um, but she hadn't fully moved in. So she brought like a suitcase and some clothing over, but nothing else. And then, you know, she left the apartment to do whatever. She wasn't there whenever um, Peggy was was killed and when her body was discovered. And I tried to find more information on Pinky because I was really curious. Um, we'll get into this later, but there's kind of this idea that maybe because the lights were turned off to the apartment and Peggy was attacked in the apartment, maybe someone thought they were attacking someone else. And I wanted to try to find information about Pinky and whether she, you know, was just out of a bad relationship or had, you know, bad dealings with anyone that someone might be trying to come after her. And I couldn't find anything on her. So, but again, she was 18 in 1968. So she didn't have a Facebook to post to and TikToks to make and all that kind of stuff. So it's just harder to find her. Um, so we're going to get a little bit into the murder here. And if you don't like the description of crime scenes, skip the first like 10 or 15 pages of the book because she goes into great detail in describing what was there. Um, I'll kind of do as little as I can while still describing it, um, but it was brutal. Uh, when Peggy was discovered, the power was out in the apartment, like I said, and Pinky was supposed to have moved in that day. Now, her mom got home around 3 a.m. on the 26th, and as far as she knew, the friend had moved in and, and was just there. So she gets in, the lights are all off. The only light you have is, you know, street lamps or maybe if it was a full moon, there was some light coming from outside, but that's pretty much all she had. And she saw a body laying on the ground. And at first she thought, oh, it must be a life-size doll. Who has a life-size doll? Like, I mean, I had one when I was like eight. Like a blow-up doll? Like No, it was like a giant Barbie. But like life size for an eight year old. But we're talking like a fourteen year old. Yeah. If she was out all night and she had men in and out, like who's to say though that she wasn't into drugs and alcohol and it was just right. Well, and this night, so it was technically Sunday morning that she was found at you know three three thirty a.m. and her mom had been in New Jersey since Thursday. 
So she wasn't home at all Friday or Saturday. So she was probably just really tired. It's 3 a.m. The lights are off. You see something. You see legs. And I, for some reason, immediately, I guess you think life-size doll. I don't know. But thinking about mm-hmm. it, maybe all the men that came in, maybe they took possible notice to her to the daughter could have easily come back they knew where they lived that's true and that kind of floats in and out of my brain as i research everything but there's not really anything concrete and we'll kind of get to see why in a little bit but that's a possibility so mary goes over to this doll and she touches it and realizes that it is a person like it's it's skin, not plastic. Um, so then she thought it was just Pinky and that Pinky was laying on the floor sleeping. But then she like grabbed her arm and realized it was clammy and cold. And so at that point, she realized something was wrong. She went to the neighbors to get a flashlight. And she assumed that something had happened to Pinky. She was like in the hallway between the apartments, I guess, just kind of frantically talking to neighbors and people were waking up and hearing whatever. And one of the neighbors went to the breaker and turned on the power for the apartment. And when they walked back in, that's when they realized that it was Peggy and not a doll and not Pinky and that no one was sleeping. Um, A neighbor named Walter tried to administer aid, uh, but he said that rigor had already set in. And typically, I think that's like two to six hours after you die. Maybe I'm off on that, but I'm pretty sure it's I mean, it's if rigor sets in, it's not like it's been a week. Um, Rigor sets in, I want to say somewhere like two to six hours She was beaten beyond recognition and blood had pulled between her thighs. So the original thought was she must have been sexually assaulted. Um, And there is actually no evidence that she was sexually assaulted. Um, The autopsy report did, again, confirm that she had been beaten and there was a, quote, barbaric bite on her left breast. Um, And in trial later because this did go to trial but it is unsolved um in trial there was a forensic dentist who said it was likely that she was bit either shortly before her death or after she died i guess based on the swelling and the way that it bruised with the teeth marks um it was unlikely that she had blood flowing for a very long time after the bite She was strangled for more than four minutes with a cloth dress belt and a foot-long recurve hunting bow that belonged to her boyfriend was thrust into her rectum a minimum of 16 times. Every single one of her internal organs was wounded. Her lungs were perforated 11 times and her heart had been stabbed at least five. There was no trauma to her vagina. There was no semen. There was no indication of a vaginal rape or assault. Um, But at least 16 times this foot long recurve bow, not the arrow, the bow had been. No, I don't like that. I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, yeah, we had talked about this a little bit and I said, are we talking like a bow with sights or something that you see now? But it's no. literally just like an old school bow, just mm-hmm. a curved thing with a line. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they were actually unable to determine her exact time of death because the way that they're able to get an accurate measure of time of death, at least in the late 60s, was through rectal thermometers. And they couldn't get an accurate temperature because of how destroyed her body was from this assault. Well, all the damage makes it sound like it was super personal. I mean, that is intense. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, is there was no lights. And if you can't tell who it is, was it extremely personal for mom or pinky or really was it for her? Yeah. And that's a, a big theory that comes up and gets discussed a lot is that someone may have been trying to attack someone else. Um, Now the thought is 
she had a separate bedroom. So it wasn't the same room that her mom slept in. So the thought that it may have been someone trying to attack her mom, if it was someone that had been in the apartment before, um, either they may not have remembered the layout of the apartment or um, they weren't going for the mom because they were not in, in the mom's room. Um, this brought up a lot of questions, mainly, you know, why is a 14 year old alone in this apartment when the lights are out? So, and we, we talked about this a little bit. Um, her mom had gone to New Jersey overnight and in an interview with her mom, she said, well, I left either Thursday or Friday. And I don't know how you forget whether you left Thursday or Friday, Drugs. but yeah, she was not sure. And then her twin sister, like I said, had moved out of the apartment with her husband and their newborn. And her boyfriend had been picked up on that warrant for the um, unpaid support. Whatever we determine that means. Um, so he's definitely in jail at that point. Yeah. So they did. Of course, you know, you start with the people closest and you work your way out. They did look at him pretty directly and he had been picked up by the constable at the apartment at either 1 or 1.30 p.m. on that Saturday. So, I mean, he was he was locked up at that point. So it definitely wasn't him. Um, and the constable saw Peggy and, you know, spoke with Peggy. So she was alive whenever um, whenever her boyfriend was picked up. Um, now, the book that I read really clung on to this idea of there being something weird about being arrested on a Saturday. But I mean, I know constables now will, will go and execute warrants at any point. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a weekend or a weekday or um, it wasn't done by police officers on duty. You know, it, it was a constable. And I don't know how much that position has changed since the sixties, but um, I would it think didn't strike me as odd, but they mention it a lot in the book that they thought it was weird. I would think if it was a Sunday, it would stick out a little bit more because back then, like nothing was really open on Sunday. That's true. And so Sunday would probably throw a red flag for me. But I mean, I guess if you just don't pay your bill, they're coming for you. Well, that's true. Um, Do we know how long the lights were out? Because it makes me almost think like this was the movie Scream and they turned the lights out and then came in. But it sounds like they were out for a while. Um, I'm not 100% sure. Honestly, I didn't even think to look into it. So the answer may be out there, but I didn't see it in anything that I read. But I also didn't look for it. Um, Because like I could run with the idea of, well, if mom was out of town and they shut the lights off, she I mean, what else would she do? She's 14. She's not old enough right. to think like what should i do you're going to stay stay in your safe place which is home right now i know that the landlord admitted that he is the one that had turned off the power because they hadn't been paying rent so um it's not anything like scream but it does i mean i see where you're you're pulling that from but it was definitely done by the landlord because they weren't paying so he he did admit to turning that off. Now, when the investigation started, originally they did have this thought that we've talked about a couple times, you know, was it mistaken identity? Um, did someone think she was mom? Did someone think she was pinky? Did someone think they were in a different apartment? You know, I, it was three 30 in the morning when her mom found her. So they don't really know exactly what time she died. Maybe it was dark outside and dark inside so you really couldn't see anything and like i said i was trying to find information on pinky just kind of not hoping someone was after pinky but kind of hoping there would be some sort of connection of you know well why is she moving in with them you know is she escaping a bad relationship or something but it was kanicki in the t-bird yes that must have been it it's a few years too Kenicky. early <laughs> 
I love Pinky. But that's what it makes me think of when you say Pinky. It was eventually determined that she likely died between 7 p.m. and 9.25 p.m. on that Saturday night. Um, six witness statements compiled this estimate, and it just had to do with people that saw her at different times in different locations. Um, and then knowing, of course, that she wound up in her apartment. So there had to at least be time for her to get back to the apartment. There was a classmate that testified in court that said she saw Peggy walk by her house crying somewhere between 6 and 6.15 p.m. on that Saturday. Um, but she said it was just kind of like if you live in a town and someone walks by and they seem upset, if you're not super close with them, you're just going to let them keep walking. Well, her boyfriend just got picked up. So right. right. Mom's out of town. Your protector is off in the pokey for child support now. Right. I didn't see the other details about what led to those specific times, but that was one that was highlighted in one of the news articles from the trial. Um, there was at one point a man who was seen leaving the apartment complex through the fire exit, like the fire stairs, um, between 6 and 6.15 Saturday night. He had a metallic green jacket and green pants. Um, so keep that description in mind because it'll come back in a little bit when we talk about someone specific. Um, within less than a week, there were 12 persons of interest. So she was found on Sunday and her funeral services were, I believe, that Wednesday. And by the time they had the funeral services, there were 12. They called them suspects, but they were really just people of interest. I don't think they had different terminology for it then like we do now. And then, like I said, you know, her boyfriend was ruled out because she was seen alive by the constable that picked him up uh, 1.30 on that Saturday. And then, of course, you know, other people said, well, we saw her here. We saw her there, whatever. So um, the boyfriend was not at fault here. Now, of those 12 people of interest, um, two of them died by suicide fairly quickly after her death, which at first kind of seemed a little bit sketchy one of them died about three weeks after her death it was the beginning of june i want to say maybe june 7th um was the day that he died and then the other died at the end of june but after further investigation they were both determined to have not been related to the case um they were both i think they both became persons of interest because they had run-ins with the law before um, and I believe both of their run-ins had to do with burglary, which was a, a theory that was going around that, you know, someone was trying to burgle the house and she walked in while there was a burglar in the apartment and that she was attacked because she had caught someone trying to, to take whatever. But they didn't really go through who the other 10, well, we're going to talk about one of them, but who the other nine people were. Um, they didn't go into too much detail. And... <laughs> There was a quote from one of the investigators on the scene that said, you know, it was essentially useless to even try to gather any evidence because Mary came home, touched what she thought was the doll, which wasn't a doll, realized it was a person, realized that they weren't waking up, went to the neighbor. Well, then multiple neighbors were in and then... You know, you don't realize it's a crime until the lights are back on. And even then it just, I mean, it looks like she could have just, you know, bled out. Like it didn't really look like a crime until they really examined what was there. So the bow and arrow wasn't, wasn't a big enough clue. Like, hi, this doesn't belong up your butt. Well, once the lights were on and they could see that. But when people were coming in and using flashlights and you're only getting a little bit of a glimpse. Um, so there were so many people in the apartment before they realized it was even a crime. And it's just not a thing you think of. You don't think about. I mean, we think about not touching things, but, you know, we enjoy this stuff and live in this world of true crime. But you don't think about, oh, I can't touch her. I can't help the mother. I can't touch anything in the room. So they said basically any sort of evidence you could find was just useless because it was so contaminated by all the people coming and going. Jean Benet Ramsey. Mm hmm. I had that same thought. 
They just let them touch everything. Yep. <laughs> let them search the entire house themselves. I don't think it was until OJ when things really started to be more of a lock everything down and take evidence more seriously. Not yeah. that they didn't take it seriously. Pro- have better protocols in place, I should say. Like not letting friends come in and walk around the crime scene repeatedly or clean up the kitchen or, you know, things like that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. So in 2008, they pulled a grand jury to review evidence and they concluded that there were no findings that would lead to an arrest. Uh, the grand jury did point fingers at three people slash organizations for, quote, allegedly spreading conspiracy theories about the case. Um, now, this is where I said, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. And he said, she said, this is where a lot of it comes from. Um, now, the first one on their list is Michelle Gooden, who is the author that wrote the book that I read. Um, she is that Lebanon native who wrote all about it. Um, and when you read it, you can tell that there's some bias, even just for the area and um, some of the people that come up, you know, she'll say like, oh, I knew them when I was a kid and they were always this type of person or whatnot. Um, so that's one source that kind of incited this grand jury to be created. Um, there's also Kevin Snavely. He's a police officer who was fired. He was a, a Lebanon police officer and we'll get into him in a little bit because there was a, a lawsuit because he was terminated from his position. Um, and he claims that he was terminated so that he would stop investigating this particular case. Um, but there are more details that we'll get to a little bit later on. Um, and the third one was Lebanon daily news. Um, I mean, we all know those news sources that when you see them, you kind of take them with a grain of salt because they're always written with some bias. Um, and the claim here is that Lebanon daily news was writing with bias to, um, kind of push some of these conspiracy theories along fake news in the 60s apparently well this was 2008 still when they pulled this um so it it was like michelle had gone back into the city to start researching and like learning more about the case she was either four or five when peggy was killed so she really didn't remember much from her childhood but she wanted to go back and learn more And as she was reading things and finding people's names, she was starting to take some of those names around town and ask questions. And at one point she was told, like, you need to stop asking questions because you're going to get yourself hurt if you don't stop asking questions. Um, So some of that played into what ended up pulling this grand jury. Um, And the grand jury said or, well, they didn't say it, but as a result of the grand jury that was pulled, um, they believe that a solution's only going to come from some sort of corroborated deathbed confession, that whoever is at fault is going to confess as they're dying, and somebody else is going to say, yeah, that's true. So, you know, we don't fully know, um, but many people do believe that um, art root or root junior was um the murderer so the reason i'm giving two pronunciations for the last name um i know that the root family spelled r-o-o-t was a family in lancaster county and like if you've ever in lancaster county gone to roots farmer's market on a tuesday or saturday it's spelled like root but it's pronounced root being close in Lebanon County, I don't know if they're the same family, so I don't know if it is root or root, but I am going to say root um, just because I know the root family from Lancaster and that's in my brain how I'm always going to say it. So I might be wrong, but just bear with me. Um, so 
His full name is Arthur McKinley Root Jr. He was arraigned in November 1968 for these charges. He did have a history of theft and arrests and was actually incarcerated at the Lancaster County Prison when he escaped in 1965. He escapes. Okay. Seems to be a theme. Yeah. So he fled to Chicago, got married, had kids. And then came back to central PA and he admitted during the trial for Peggy's murder, he admitted that he was caught driving somebody else's car without their permission, which I feel like is just a really passive way of saying I stole someone's car. Like, how are you driving someone's car without their permission if you have not stolen the car? I mean, I'll drive my husband's truck every once in a while and not ask him, but my name is on the truck. That's like implied consent. It's not. Right. Like, and maybe, But maybe that's the situation. Maybe he took like a mom or grandma's car and they didn't give him like direct permission to drive it. But he ended up being in jail for it. So... Like, there was some sort of legitimacy to whatever it was. Do um, you need a marriage certificate? How do you get a marriage certificate when you escape from prison? I don't know. Is that not a thing? In 65? I have no clue. But then again, my grandfather had a wife in Pennsylvania and a wife in California. So maybe not. Touche. Touche. Um, so anyway... Uh, He came back into Central PA in 1968 and was actually seen talking to Peggy the day before her body was discovered. Um, And apparently he was wearing a metallic green jacket and green pants that day, which, of course, is the description that was given from the fire escape of the man that was there Saturday evening. Metallic like windbreaker. I think so. Chance. He's pretty much. Yeah. So one of the witnesses that testified in court described it as being a green color that kind of illuminated at different angles. So I guess that's where the idea of something metallic comes from. Cause I mean, like you think of reflective gear and if you rotate it, I mean, it's going to look lighter at different angles. So it makes me think of like the windbreakers, like the shimmery yeah. windbreakers that like kind of are iridescent and might look like yeah. a little bit more olive green one way, maybe like a little more bluish the other. And yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, that being said, this person, if it was art, was seen leaving the apartment building between six and six fifteen. I mean, there were multiple apartments in this building. So even if it truly was him leaving the apartment building, it's circumstantial at best. But she was walking on the street and someone saw her at that time. So also true. If Windbreaker guy is jumping out the fire escape, it makes me think that he was sleeping with someone he shouldn't have been sleeping with and was because she was currently being seen somewhere else. And like, how far was this other person's house or was it in the apartment complex that if he saw her at six but then i don't do you, think i don't do think do it was in damage? the apartment complex okay so it's not like they saw her crying at six and then she was walking up the stairs and windbreaker guy does all this damage in 10 minutes and jumps out the fire escape i don't think it lines up that way okay. um now of course it's all witness testimony giving these times so people could be off um but that's that's what people said now they did give the addresses um so the, they have the address listed in the newspaper article for where this classmate of hers saw her but i did not write down the address but it is not the same as the apartment okay. complex so i do know that it was a different building and it was a different street name okay. so it could have been a parallel street or you know, a perpendicular street to that. She might not have been far, but um, it was not the same street. So he was brought into court and tried for her murder. Um, In trial, it actually came out that he had been in the Reber apartment that day and that he was owed money by Mary, which again is Peggy's mom. He was in the apartment during the day to take 
her record player as collateral for money that he was owed. Don't know what he was owed money for, but he told someone that Mary owed him $40 and that he was going to take her stereo, which I guess is the record player, if she didn't pay. And then he admits like he was in the apartment that day, but he also had a key to the apartment. Um, He fully admitted also that he had had sexual relations with Mary, but denied any sexual contact with Peggy. And honestly, there was no evidence to support that there would have been any sexual contact between him and Peggy. I mean, the apartment was a revolving door for men, but it very much seemed like it was a revolving door for men, for Mary, not Peggy. But he was in the apartment. She owed him money. He took her record player because she didn't pay him the money. And the timeline is kind of close to when she was seen somewhere else in town as to when he was leaving the building. So there's still some sketch factor there, but it's it's just weird stuff. Like, why? Why? <laughs> I mean, if she was leaving the house, her house crying, maybe it's because she got there and all the stuff's gone and her boyfriend, like, that's a whole lot of shit going on at one day. Like, your mom's not there, your boyfriend's picked up, you come back and all your shit's gone, you have no power to your house. I'd be crying on the street, too. But then you would go home and go to sleep. But did it say, like, if she was going home or leaving home? It didn't say it was just because the the classmate didn't interact with her at all. She just saw that she was walking by and crying. Yeah. Well, if the guy got his money, money's worth of stuff, why would he then kill her? I don't get it. And is it really worth $40 for a life? I don't I mean, 40 bucks is 40 bucks. I don't know. But if she owed 40 bucks to him, who's to say she didn't know more to someone else? Right. And with the lights off, depending on like what Mary and Peggy look like. I mean, I look like my mom. So maybe in the dark, they thought that they were, you know, this sounds horrible, but I'm a fucker good. And yeah, I can't get money out of her. So I'll kill her. Yeah. I hate that thought, but he, you know, continued to deny. I didn't even, you know, Peggy wasn't even in the apartment when I was there and took whatever. Um, And again, he had a key. So and it didn't say I'm assuming that whatever happened, there was no forced entry because that was never commented on. Um, And how do you go down the fire escape with a stereo? I think it was just like a record player. Like, I think it was just a single piece. Yeah, but they're big back then. My aunt has one, and it's it's big. Unless they made, like, little portable ones, but it's not. Like, they're big. I mean, they're maybe, something... like, a tabletop, like, rather than a Vitrola. I mean, like, my parents have a, a huge Vitrola, but maybe it was just a smaller, I don't know, more compact one. There's been a video that has been going on for, for years, and I always laugh, and you made me think about it. It's about this guy... And it's speculation that he's on drugs, but he's riding a bicycle, holding a fridge on his shoulder and going down the the street with this fridge. Uh, I mean, a real fridge, a completely full size fridge and just biking down the street with it. Normal things, you know. <laughs> Jeez. So um, the other thing that came out during trial regarding the timeline is that she was seen at a comfort station around 8 p.m. on that Saturday. I don't know what a comfort station is. Tried to look it up. I, it, it sounds like gave a rest nothing. stop. Like I've seen That's them called, what I'm thinking. I've seen them called comfort stations. And if she didn't have electric, then maybe she went there to shower and get ready for the night. That's true. Like, and for bed, um, not for the night, they anyway. did... They did say that Pinky was with her at the comfort station. So, I mean, if they were both supposed to stay at the apartment that night, you've got no power. It would make sense that they would be together there. Um, And then I guess they just ended up splitting at some point that night. But then that totally blows up that timeline. Right. I mean, it would have to be them. What? Eight. However, for the comfort station is eight fifteen, we'll say, to nine twenty five, and where the hell did Pinky go? And that's another reason I was trying to search her name, and I, I mean, 
I don't, maybe you, you're usually better at searching, but I was in all of the like subscription accounts we have, like the paid accounts, searching her name, her nickname, um, trying to search like what her age would be now. Like it, I, yeah, I could not find anything. I spent an annoying amount of time for no results. <laughs> so I shall look while you continue. <laughs> go for it. Um, but that kind of threw a wrench in the timeline. But when I think about the fact that rigor had set in, so it was, I don't know, probably four to six hours since she died. I mean, her being out until eight or nine and then getting killed closer to midnight would make sense. She would she could still be showing signs of rigor by three, three thirty when her mom got home. So it's definitely still possible that she was there. Um, so they went through the trial and everything and the jury came back and acquitted him and said, you know, you're not guilty. There's not enough evidence here. Um, I'm not sure if it was like a reasonable doubt that there was just a possible chance that he didn't do it. Um, but it, I mean, they returned their verdict pretty quickly. The entire trial and verdict discussion was 10 days. So it, it wasn't something that took forever for them to decide. Um, now, of course, there is that theory that we see all the time. We talked about with our robot voice allegedly the other week. Um, there's always that chance that someone can be acquitted and still be guilty. So there definitely are people that remain convinced that Art Root really is the one that um, killed her. But according to the justice system, he was found not guilty. So um, that's kind of the big one that got tried. Um, now, I mentioned earlier Kevin Snavely, that police officer. Um, he was dismissed allegedly for taking discarded evidence home. Um, not from this case. He was not on this case. Uh, but I guess if you're a police officer, just don't take home discarded evidence. Just let it be discarded. I have no idea. Maybe it was um, jewelry or drugs. That's true. But it wasn't a, there were no criminal charges filed against him. It was just, you know, hey, you're, you're being dismissed from your job. Um, he claimed, that, and this is where the lawsuit came from that I mentioned earlier. He claimed that the reason they terminated him was so that he would not get involved in the Reber case because he was communicating back and forth with Michelle as she was writing the book, um, which it, it wasn't a breach of anything. You know, he wasn't working the case, so there wasn't like a non-disclosure agreement or anything like that. Um, but he thinks that they just kind of found another reason to push him out so that he wouldn't wind up involved in the Reber case. Um, he definitely felt that there was someone other than Root that was responsible. Um, and so does Michelle. We're going to kind of get into that here in just a little bit. Um, and he ended up suing the department over his termination and then eventually revoked the lawsuit and went back to work for them. So he became a Lebanon, I think it was Lebanon city police officer again. Um, I'm not sure what their, you might know better than I would, Amanda, what their, um, system, like if they're Lebanon city or I have no idea, I guess they'd be city. Um, I have no I idea. I mean, it could be covered by like the state police or, Sorry, I'm trying to look at the link you sent me and I have to prove that I'm not a robot. Oh, it's um so that is uh Pink Miss Pinky and her middle name is V and sometimes she would go by Virginia instead. Ah. But the PA docket system is down right now so I can't get into it but oh. um yeah. 
She'd be, okay. she was, if she was 18 at the time of the murder, she would have been born in 1950, which would make her 70. Depending 71, on, 72. 70. Yeah. yeah, depending on when she was born. Yep. When, so I when think, I think that's who it is. Yeah, that seems to line up, of course, with, with everything being down. We can't find too many details, but at least we located and know that she's a real person <laughs> so she that's does. helpful Thank you, um, by virginia <laughs> good to know i would probably want to change my nickname too um but yeah so that's a little bit about kevin snavely there um i don't know if he is still working for them he was as of the article that i read but that was published uh, a couple years back so i'm not sure if he has since retired and i didn't look him up because it's not that important to what we're talking about so the big theory that gets thrown around and this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg for conspiracy and we're not going to go too deep into it is could it be the brother-in-law so part of the investigation that Kevin was doing, again, on his own time, he was not a part of the Peggy Reber investigation at work. He was just, you know, kind of doing his own thing. Um, and that's where he was, you know, kind of going back and forth with Michelle Gooden, the author that we talked about. Um, this all led to a thought that Richard Boyer Sr., was at least minimally involved, if not the perpetrator of the assault that resulted in Peggy's death. So Richard Boyer Sr. was Peggy's brother-in-law. So that's the man that was married to Peggy's sister, um, which is also her boyfriend at the time's brother. Um, now... There were comments from her sister during the trial about being beaten. Um, when she got up on the stand, she was wearing a specific piece of clothing and someone said, was that the clothing Peggy had on the day that she died? Like when she was seen alive, because it matched the description. And she said something about. Um, and, and the way it was written in the article, the journalist just kept using the pronoun she. So I don't know if it was referring to Peggy or the sister, but it was something about she was wearing it two days prior when she had been beaten. Um, but I couldn't tell if that was Peggy was wearing it and she had been beaten two days before she died or that the sister was wearing it two days before trial and she had also been beaten. So the reason I bring that up is because I'm not sure if maybe the sister was being beaten by her husband, which would be Richard Boyer Sr. Okay. Um, and I, I guess maybe the idea is that the sister had been in the apartment. They were twins. They were identical twins. You can see pictures. Um, sorry to you guys as we're recording. I didn't put them in the document, but you can Google it quick. Um, <laughs> but... For you guys listening, um, it's on our, our blog. Um, I mean, they're identical twins. So it kind of flows with this idea that we've been talking about where maybe it was a mistaken identity because it very well could be that it was an abusive situation. I mean, nowadays it would absolutely be abusive because it was an adult and a minor married and she was pregnant. So even if it wasn't physically abusive, that's at least statutory. Um, but there's this idea that maybe he was abusing the sister and thought the sister was going to be back in that apartment that night. And maybe he thought he was going after his wife for whatever reason. And it ended up being Peggy. Honestly, there's not a whole lot of information. There's not a lot of proof. Um, they're just, you know, circumstantial evidence, stories that circulate, um, different things that place him at the Reber apartment that night. But again, no proof, really no other witnesses, um, not in the way that we had witnesses that saw someone going out the fire escape or, you know, seeing someone on the street. You know, no one could actually identify him as being there. Um, but there's a lot of that circumstantial evidence 
pointing to him. Um, now his son adamantly denies these claims. Um, there was a pen live article and I guess the son whose name is Richard Boyer Jr. Answered the phone and, you know, talked to pen live. Cause you find a number for a guy with the same name, you're going to call him. And they were asking for him to give his dad's number. And he was like, um, no, you think my dad killed someone? Why would I give you his phone number? Which, like, same. I mean, if someone called me and they were like, we think your mom or dad or brother did X, Y, Z. That's a horrible crime. Um, can you just, like, give me their digits? No. No, I won't. Um, so some people saw that as him saying, well, my dad is guilty, which is why I'm not going to give you the number. But in reality, like if a random news company called me and was like, hey, I want someone's number that you're related to. Like, no, I'm not. It, no. Bust out the um, right. And I mean, if anyone needed to contact my family, all of my relatives have their own businesses, so it wouldn't be that hard to find them anyway. But, you know, it's like. People tried to hold that against him as saying, well, you must know that your dad's guilty because you wouldn't give his number when it's like, no, I just don't give out other people's phone numbers. Um, now, at one point at at the point when this article came out, there were about 80 people that were subpoenaed um, and the senior Boyer was part of that subpoena, but nothing has ever come of it. And. I am forgetting what year that article came out. I want to say it might have been 08. Um, let me pull it back up here. Yeah, it came out in December of 2008. So nothing has come of it since then. I don't think there was any, you know, earth shattering information that came out from that subpoena from those people. Um, but they were at least, you know, going back into it and talking to anybody that they could to try to get whatever information they could. Um, the other theories that kind of get explored, we're not going to really go into them. Um, and we've honestly kind of talked about them already is just the standard things that we see in all of these unsolved cases. Was it a burglary gone wrong? Was somebody going after Pinky? Was somebody mad at Peggy or her sister or her mom? And you know, I mean, like I said, identical sister, identical twin sisters. And then Amanda, as you said, you know, they do kind of look like their mom mm -hmm. um, and their mom was young when she had them. So, I mean, their mom was still young. So could it be someone trying to go after someone else in the family? Was it just a crime of passion? I think it's personal. Like to, I think it's personal to bite someone's boob like that and then well go to town. I don't. And I did find some information that they they ruled out that the bite on her breast was not from Art Root. Um, and like something with, I guess, the alignment of his teeth. That's where that forensic dentist came in in the the trial um brian laundry's uncle really <laughs> joking oh i thought maybe his uncle you didn't know that apparently there's a big rumor that brian laundry's uncle is a dentist and he's the one that confirmed the dental records just saying oh super sketch oh you know but it, it was on tiktok so you know take Who it knows? with a grain of yeah. salt my brother asked me if we were going to cover the Brian Laundry case. So there we go, Alex. That's your your little bit of Brian Laundry since it's not a PA case. Um, I don't remember what I was saying. The bite marks were not arts. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good gravy. Um, so the the bite marks were not his and they narrowed it down to believing that it was probably her boyfriend. That being said, they also said that anyone that has like a normal alignment of teeth, it also could be. No, wait, the boyfriend that was in jail. Yes. And they're saying that the bite. I don't know if they thought it was just some sort of fun foreplay from before he got picked up that just ended up bruising throughout the rest of the day. But like, did, did it bleed or was it just marks? 
It was just marks. Okay, because I'm thinking, I think like, it was, like, bruised. I was thinking, like, blood. Like, actually... I don't think so. Okay. Um, Because I think that's why they were saying they thought it had happened very shortly before the death. Um, Because of the way that it bruised or... Lack of bruising. Right. Um, But again, they were like, well, it kind of matches her boyfriend's teeth. There's a kind of. The constable was like, bro, he was in jail. Like, it it was not him. Kind of like, was it uh, Ted Bundy that like bit some girl's butt and they matched it to yes. his teeth because his teeth were like janky? Yeah. And they were all like out of alignment and the exact misalignment is what. So I think the bite mark on her, the teeth were aligned properly. So it was like, well, it could be him, but it could also be anybody that has properly aligned teeth. So I, it seemed kind of as evidence i thought they threw that out being able to use those uh for like bite marks and stuff like that i thought they stopped allowing that in court maybe they may have yeah i mean again this was 68 so and they i mean they didn't even use it against anyone they were just kind of like they could go to an orthodontist and be like everyone that gets their braces off it could have been you exactly and i think that's part of like Chelsea saying they can't use it anymore now. I think that's honestly part of it because you have so much control over the way your teeth align now that you can't really prove that it would be one person or another. Um, so like I said before, there is some scandal to this. Um, you know, when, when Michelle was writing, her book um and honestly she never really intended to publish it it really started as i want to do research i want to figure these things out and i want to document my research so she wrote everything down and then eventually it was like i think somebody else convinced her to actually publish it um but she does tell stories in the book about you know being told to hush up um and oh i forget i think she said it was a family member of hers either that or it was a really good friend that she ran into um she lives out of state now but she came back to lebanon when she was researching and they were told they told her like hey just don't even talk about it like let it go people are still alive that were probably involved and accept that we're never going to have an answer unless we get a deathbed confession. Um, and also something else I found in my research is like, everyone was just having sex with everybody. Um, like not just art having sex with Mary, but like this person in law enforcement was sleeping with this person in law enforcement's wife. And it like, there were so many stories of secrets and affairs and whatever that I couldn't even keep track of all of them. Um, there's just a lot of circles in this research of this person connected to this person because of this random thing. Um, so really, that's all I have research wise. Um, it's kind of a, a crazy case that maybe has an ending and maybe it really is art jr um or maybe i don't think it is that's my not. personal opinion i don't think it is i really don't i don't know if i believe that it was the brother-in-law i don't know if i fully buy into that theory because it is so circumstantial um but i feel like it it doesn't line up to be art but hmm. if you do know anything about the murder of Margaret Peggy Lynn Reber on May 25th or 26th, 1968, you can call the district attorney's office at 717-228-4403. Can I add something really fast? I just want to do a clarification. So apparently um, bite marks are used in courts, but it's really not known as a reliable science. I had to look it up because I didn't want to be wrong. Um, they just said that it's like a bad medium and there's like tons of studies that show that 
if someone bites a cadaver and then bites them in another spot, it doesn't even perfectly match up because of like the elasticity of the skin. Just putting it out there. It might be a good, like, if they have, like, really jacked up teeth, like Ted Bundy, where, you know, you can be like, oh, like, this tooth is, like, super far out in left field, and that's how it looks like on, on her thigh and her arm. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleep out.